0: Our Father, we're thankful that it is through prayer that we can support one another. And Lord, I pray that you will teach us how powerful prayer really is as we understand that it is as we bow our hearts before you and submit to the true and the living God that we can reach out and touch the heart of God and agree with what it is you want to accomplish because we know that. Out of your heart flows good things, and uh, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness or shadow of turning. Lord, we're just grateful for the opportunity we have to share in the lives of these who are carrying on the work far away. We're grateful for others, Lord, who, who come and go in our class from different parts of the world, and that this uh, opportunity we have to understand that the Church of Jesus Christ is is not neighborhood church in Reading, but it's the worldwide church wherever born again believers are gathered together. And we know, Lord, that on this Sunday, even though we're late in Sunday and and it's already much past in Africa and other parts of the world, that uh, we are gathering uh, like many others, millions uh, around the world. And Lord, I trust that you will bless our study here this morning of your word and that you will anoint and empower um, the truth, that it will not only fall upon our ears, but it will enter our hearts and change our lives as we commit our way to you now, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you will turn to the first book of Samuel, the 17th chapter, I'd like to begin reading at verse 31. When the words which David spoke were heard, they were told to Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Then Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him? For you are but a youth while he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock. I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed them with armor. And David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. And he took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had even in his pouch, And his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Last week we were looking at this uh, particular passage, and we note from the earlier part of the chapter that Israel and the Philistines have been facing each other at a place called uh, the Valley of Elah, which is located right down here. Here's Soka, Soko, right here. And not too far away is a place called Azekah, which isn't named on there, but it's within about three miles of Soka. And in between this this little light-colored area is the Valley of Elah here. The Elah, brook Elah, comes down through and flows out onto the Philistine plain. So David has come from Bethlehem where he was keeping his father's sheep. And his father gave him supplies to give to his three elder brothers who were with Saul in the army as they were gathered here in the Elah Valley. The Philistines who had been defeated by Israel a few years before, have now come back with a vengeance because they have a new champion. They have this man under the name of Goliath of Gath. And we read in the first part of the chapter how uh, this was a very unusual man. He was one of the Nephilim. He was a man who, conservatively speaking, stood nine foot nine and was appropriately built, a very, very large man, who had been a warrior, as we read in here, from his youth. And so he is the champion. The two armies have lined up on opposite sides of the brook Elah there. And it's kind of a little amphitheater-like area in in that region of Israel, in the Shephelah. And as they lined up, the Philistines decided to challenge the Israelites, let's let's not have all-out wholesale war with two armies fighting each other, but let's face off our champions. Your champion against our champion. Now, of course, the Philistines were willing to do this. Because they knew they had an unbeatable champion. I mean, there was nobody in Israel that even uh, could stand toe-to-toe with Goliath. Uh, Saul was the biggest man in Israel. He stood head and shoulders above everybody else, which probably meant he was probably somewhere a little over six foot, six foot two, something like that. At that particular time, maybe slightly taller. But nine foot nine, Mm, you're still looking up quite a ways (laughs) to face such a man as Goliath. And of course, he, he was a man who had been raised as a warrior. Uh, from the time of his uh, his youth. The question, of course, that many might ask is, uh, where was he before <laughs> when the Philistines were faced against Israel? Where was this guy Goliath? Well, we don't know. All we know is he's now center stage in in the story. Well, David brought the goods down to provide for his brothers, and when he went out to talk with his brothers, they were all lined up in the battle formation, because it was that time of day when Goliath was going to come forth, and and yell and scream and accuse the Israelites of being a bunch of cowards and uh, saying, send me a man to fight and, and we'll do it one-on-one. And, and whoever wins, that, that side wins. And the other side will serve the side of the one whose champion wins. And, and David, of course, couldn't believe his ears. You guys, for 40 days and 40 nights, you've been listening to this guy come out and, and use all this uh, bad language and accuse the armies of the living God and accuse God of being powerless. You've let this happen? You've done nothing about it. And, and David was incredulous, and he began speaking to others about this, other men in the ranks there. And he uh, wanted to know, well, what, what's the reward for whoever defeats this Philistine? Well, they were, they first told him that, and then he asked again to find out for sure. And, and of course, his elder brother, his oldest brother, Elia, was, of course, very jealous and envious and, of, of David. And he, he just thought of him as a punk. And he says, what's this kid doing out here? He's just braggadocious here. Well, the word has reached Saul, what David had said. Now, you can imagine, 40 days and 40 nights, David, uh, Saul has been wondering, what am I gonna do? I'm the biggest guy, I'm the only champion in this army, and yet I don't want to go out and face this guy, Goliath. And so what am I gonna do? We're we're looking like the fool here, and this can't go on forever. And so he was hoping somehow a champion would come along and so when he heard uh, the words of David, he thought, well, maybe this is, this is my man. And so he asked that uh, David be brought before him. Now, what we find are some strange things about Saul as we move through this chapter and even other chapters uh, that Saul seems to have a very bad short-term memory. And so David is brought before him and he acts almost like he doesn't know David. But then at the last minute, he seems to remember and he says, Oh, now, wait a minute. I can't send you out there. You're nothing but a shepherd. You can't go out and fight this, uh, this guy. And then, of course, David uh, gave to him the explanation of how he, as a shepherd, had slain a lion. He had slain a bear with his bare hands. And this guy, Goliath, is no different from a lion or from a bear, that he will die just as easily because God is the one who empowered me to defeat the bear, to defeat the lion. God will empower me to defeat the this giant Goliath. Saul was not a man of faith. Saul was a man who was not trusting God at all here, but he was moved by David's expression of faith. Okay, well, go ahead. You take on Goliath. But what we discover is that Saul's not willing just to say to David, okay, go go ahead and take on Goliath. He decided he's got to make him look like a soldier at least. And so he drags David over her, over to the side and he starts dressing him and uh, puts a bronze helmet on his head and then he be- begins to put armor on his body. Now, exactly what kind of armor, we don't know. We're told earlier in the passage that uh, Goliath was was wearing scale armor. Uh, there are examples from the early days of leather uh, tunics upon which pieces of, of bronze, later iron, were sewed on so that they kind of overlapped, producing kind of kind of a, almost like a mail. Later on in the Middle Ages there would be what's known as chain mail, which is uh, constructed differently. But but similar in the sense that you remember we talked about Goliath's armor weighing 125 pounds. Well, hmm, that's a lot of weight uh, for armor to bear. Mostly in those days what was worn was a breastplate, uh, a breastplate of metal, bronze in this particular case, that would be laced together in the back and maybe a skirt with, with metal uh, pieces hanging down, maybe, maybe not. Uh, maybe greaves, we don't know, to, to protect the front part of the legs. There's not a lot of archaeological evidence about armor this early in history. Uh, we know about it particularly from the Greek and Roman time a little bit later, and then, of course, as we move into the medieval period, we have lots of examples of armor uh, that are in museums uh, in Europe. But we're talking about 3,000 years ago. We're talking about over a thousand years uh, before the time of Christ. And so armor of some sort was what uh, Saul was trying to put on David. David had never been a soldier. David had never trained in the army. David had never worn armor before. And so as he put on this metal, it seemed to encumber him, the weight of it, the inflexibility of it, just, just seemed to be more bother than it was worth. We're, we're told there that David never tested it. Again, I mean, a heavily armed giant without taking any human precaution. He was not only not wearing armor, he, we, we discover in the passage he didn't have a sword with him. He didn't have a spear. He didn't have an axe. He didn't have a helmet. He didn't have anything that a soldier should have. It reminds me of World War I. On the Russian front, when the, the Russians invaded Prussia at the beginning of the war in the so called Battle of Tannenberg, that the, the Russian army came moving forward and the Russian army greatly outnumbered the, the German army. But what they soon discovered was that the, only the frontline troops of the Russians had weapons. All of the backline troops had no weapons. And uh, they were waiting for the frontline troops to get shot down to grab their weapons because Russia was not able to produce enough weapons to supply all of their troops that early in the war. I, I would have thought that would be very frustrating to be the uh, rear guard coming up, you're, you're next to be in line, you don't even have a weapon, you know, you throw rocks at the enemy. Well, if you were a David maybe, but uh, not these guys. And, and, and so in many ways, uh, many would have viewed uh, David similarly. For all appearances, he was defenseless. It appeared as if he were committing suicide, in reality. He was taking God at his word. <clears throat> taking God at his word. And that is one of the most powerful truths that I think every single one of us knows in our heads. But how do we translate that to our walk? Taking God at his word. And he was acting in the direction of the Holy Spirit. Who was empowering him? Was this David's natural courage? I think not. David may have been a courageous young man, but I think that courage was greatly emboldened by the presence of the Holy Spirit of the living God, who was impelling David forward. And in this, he is a powerful example to us. I think we can all see this very clearly. How often do you and and do I attempt to solve a problem by the methods of the world? Probably more often than not rather than seeking God's direction and and seeking His Word and, and seeking the direction of the Holy Spirit and living daily in the power of the Holy Spirit. God wants us to live by His strength and His wisdom because in so doing, we testify to the world of His reality. We testify of His love, of His grace, and of His power because the world is looking for reality. The world is looking for power in the spiritual realm. Well, let's read what happens next. Verse 41. Then the Philistine came out, came on and approached David with a shield-bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come out to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine also said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and wild beasts of the earth, earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel." And that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or spear, but for the, ba- for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands. Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly for- toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead, and the stone-, stone sank into his forehead, so they fell on his face to the ground. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. Then the Philistines saw that their champion was dead and they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley to the gates of Ekron. And the slain Philistines lay along the way to Shaarim, even to Gath and Ekron. And the sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundering their camp. Then David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem and put his weapons in his tent. This encounter most likely occurred in the morning because if you read through from verse 20 through all the way down through verse 33 or 53, you discover there's not enough time if this were the evening challenge. If Goliath was outraging his in the evening, there wasn't enough time for all this to transpire. So it must have been the following morning, or at least a morning following David's arrival in the camp. The flow of the passage, however, gives us a sense that it was the following morning after David first arrived. David was not a man of great patience when it came to what he was witnessing here. We have recorded here in this passage one of the most dramatic power encounters that you will find in Scripture. There are many of them course, Gideon and and, uh, his army facing the Midianites. And of course, we think of Elijah on the top of Mount Carmel facing the priests of Baal and Ashtoreth. But this is a one-on-one power encounter. It has to be understood as a power encounter because the real battle here is the God of this world against the God of Israel. Morning and evening for 40 days, Goliath had come forth and stood there and, and, and shook his fist at Israel and challenged them to send him a champion for a one-on-one battle to the death. He was so self-assured and so arrogant that he liberally insulted the manhood of Israel and impugned the God of Israel. Of course, God could have fried him on the spot, couldn't he? I mean, he stood out there like this, and God could have sent a thunderbolt out of the clear blue sky, and the guy would have went... And I think if God had done that, both Israel and the Philistines would have said, whoa, the God of Israel is real God. But God has another plan here, a plan that no one could foresee. God has a plan, not just to demonstrate that he is the true God, but also to raise up a man, a totally obscure shepherd whom he has already anointed to be successor to Saul, but, but whom no one knows, the youngest of eight brothers. And his older brothers think of him as a punk kid. And so this will be the opportunity for God to burn into the very hearts of Israel that this is a mighty champion, a man worthy of the kingship and, of course, a man that we know to be worthy as ancestor of Messiah. Thus, on that fateful morning in the Elah Valley, Goliath swaggered forth to deliver his usual challenge. And as he did so, he saw a young man coming out of the Israelite lines dressed, not as a warrior, but as a shepherd. And and David stepped out of the cowering Israelite lines. The Israelites were all back like this, you know, shaking and quivering because Goliath was coming out and out of that line stepped David. Now, of course, again, we understand as we read this passage that Goliath was coming forth, and in front of him was his armor bearer. So there are two men out there, Goliath and his armor bearer. The purpose of the armor bearer was to carry a full body shield. And the purpose of the armor bearer was to carry that shield to ward off, of course, any arrows that might be let fly. But if the actual combat were to take place, the armor bearer would then transfer the body shield to Goliath, who then would carry the body shield and wield his spear and his sword in in his battle with whomever the champion that Israel would send forth. But in the meantime, the shield is being carried by the armor bearer. And the armor bearer has to be very watchful because in case somebody tries to ambush Goliath from out of the Israelite lines, firing an arrow or a bunch of arrows, he has to be ready there to try to protect his master with the shield. The giant moved towards David. And I thought, you know, I think the thought that went through Goliath's mind is, I'm going to give my men a good laugh. I'm going to walk towards this guy and scare that kid back into the Israelite lines. Watch him run like a rabbit as he sees me coming for him. But as he did so, David kept coming and showed no fear. You know, you, you see these t-shirts that say no fear on them. <laughs> this is no fear. <laughs> David kept coming and Goliath suddenly became insulted. Is this the best Israel can do? I thought, I th- I thought at least Saul was a mighty king, a warrior. And he are sitting in the sky with no weapons, no armor. Goliath was not impressed by his ruddy and handsome appearance. Oh, he's such a good looking kid. I don't want to mess him up. No. (laughs) He disdained him because he appeared to be untried, untrained, ill-equipped for combat. What kind of armor is a linen garment? The only thing David possessed that he was carrying with him that Goliath could even recognize as the possibility of being a weapon was his shepherd's staff. And Goliath you know wave that off is only good enough to beat off dogs and of course to him it was like an insult like david was thinking that he was a dog and of course a dog was viewed by all of the people of the ancient near east as vermin as a lowly creature he may have seen david's sling it's possible he didn't recognize it or i I think he probably recognized it but he didn't think of it as very important he discounted it as non-threatening after all he was covered in body armor. He was a mighty man. He was very powerfully built. He had a very heavy bone structure, you can imagine. And so I don't think he was much worried about his little rabbit conquer that he was carrying with him. He emphasized his contempt for David by cursing him in the name of every god he could think of. Dagon, Baal, you name it, he cursed David in the name of that god. Well, the two weren't close enough to strike blows, but they were close enough to exchange challenges. And so they kind of duked it out verbally for a while, and we read about that there in in the passage. Uh, Goliath threatened to feed David to the birds and the beasts, to the scavengers, to the vultures. But notice how David responds. David clearly proclaimed the eternal and universal significance of that encounter that was occurring that very day. David somehow saw beyond the moment into the greater influence of the halls of history. And he thought, and he understood that this confrontation was far greater than just David and Goliath. You, he said to Goliath, you come to me in the strength of human flesh. But I come to against you in the name of the Lord of hosts, God Almighty. And in David's mind, the contrast was immense. Goliath was a very, very powerful, strong warrior. But the God of Israel, the creator of the universe, there was no comparison. As I studied it reminded me of this passage that we all know so well in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 where we read, "For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of Goliaths fortresses," it says, but you could insert Goliath just as well there. And David comes forth. He isn't coming forth in in the strength of the flesh. He has no sword. He has no spear, no axe, no armor, no helmet, nothing, except shepherd's staff and a sling and five rocks that he picked up from the brook Elah. I'd like to read a passage to you from the 44th Psalm. Just a few verses there. From Psalm 44, reading in verse 8. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you we will push back our adversaries. Through your name we will trample down those who rise against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor will my sword save me. But you have saved us from our adversaries. You have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted all day long, and we will give thanks to your name forever." That's exactly what was happening. It's not in in his bow or his sword, he didn't even have one, that David was trusting. But he was trusting in the God of Israel who would save him from his adversary. David made it very crystal clear that day that it wasn't really David versus Goliath. It wasn't even Israel versus Philistia. It was beyond that. It was the almighty God of creation against the God of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And in in David's mind, the result was foregone. There was no comparison. Goliath didn't stand a chance. In verse 46, we discover that, Goliath, that, that David threw Goliath's threat back at him. He would be the one to whom he, David, would feed the birds and the beasts. Not because David was a mighty warrior, and David kept downplaying that, I am not a mighty warrior. But as a clear demonstration, he says to everyone on this earth. You see where David is looking beyond the moment? David is looking beyond the, the event of just those few uh, thousand men who were gathered that day, he said that so that all of the earth will see that the God of Israel is the true and living God. There are a lot who like to, in, in, in discussion of the history of religion, try to say that the Jews of the Old Testament, or I should say the Israelites of the Old Testament, viewed their God as just a tribal God, just, just their little local God, and the other tribes had their gods, and everybody's God was equal to everybody's God. But you look through the scripture and you discover that from Genesis through Malachi, the concept is that the God of Israel is the God of the universe, the creator God, the God of all the world. And nothing else is a God. No one else is a God. So David that day put the whole burden on the Lord. I don't know if God could handle it, right? Put the whole burden on the Lord to deliver in a supernatural way because he says, not by sword or by spear. Not by sword or by spear. How could David be so bold? I think his boldness is emphasized as we read in the latter portion of verse 47, where David said, the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Now, if I were Goliath, my confidence would begin to melt a little here, (laughs) because even though David may not appear like much of a warrior, what he's saying is hard-hitting. Of course, to a man whose mind was fried on the gods of of Philistia, the words certainly bounced off. But I think the important thing to note here is David gives to God full credit for what is happening this day. He doesn't take any of the credit for himself. God will give the victory. He even said that God would deliver Goliath and the Philistine army into our hands. In other words, sharing with all of his Israelite compatriots the victory that day. It isn't my victory. It's our victory through the power of our God. Well, David demonstrated very quickly that his words weren't just bravado because he rushed towards Goliath. He didn't go, well, this guy's pretty big. Uh, Maybe if I take baby steps, this won't happen too soon. (laughs) He rushed towards Goliath. I mean, he was ready. He was excited to see what God was going to do. What is God going to do? There, in clear view of both armies, thousands of men lined up on both sides, David the shepherd faces Goliath, the giant warrior. Now, if they were both going to herd sheep, David had the advantage. But that wasn't what they were doing that day. They were doing Goliath's thing. Let me read from Psalm 27, the first three verses. Again, you know this psalm well, but I think it's fitting here. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, and that's what Goliath intended to do that day, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. That's exactly what Goliath's going to do. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war rise against me, In spite of all this, I shall be confident. See, that's the difference between true Christianity and everything else in the world is hope. Hope. I don't mean hope like, I hope someday I might win a million dollars. I mean hope like we know this is going to happen. And God will be victorious. Now, let's put ourselves for a moment in the minds of the army of the Philistines and the army of the Israelites as he stood there watching this thing happen. Now, I agree that Hollywood always drags it out because they put everything in slow mo, you know. David is just kind of approaching, and Goliath is menacing, and the rock is going, you know. But I think for the two armies on both sides, there was a little bit of time standing still for them, and their hearts, especially the Israelite hearts, were in their mouths, and they were wondering if they were about to die themselves. They were about to watch one of the greatest mismatches of military history. From human point of view, this was absolutely ridiculous. It's like someone in a bicycle coming up against an Abrams tank, you know, in comparison here. But in reality, of course, it's absolutely the opposite. It's like a fly coming up against an Abrams tank, (coughs) only David is the Abrams tank here because the Lord God is his strength. Isn't it amazing? From the human point of view, what the mismatch was, and yet from what God's point of view and David's point of view, how the mismatch was. On the Philistine side, I, I think there was certainly great confidence as they watched their battle-hardened veteran, this giant of a man whom none of them wished to ever have to tangle with. I think he got his way in camp. If he wanted something, nobody argued with him. <laughs> if he won the biggest piece of meat, who, who was going to deny it to him? I mean, what, what general was going to say to Goliath? You know, Goliath, I'm going to break you to butt private. If you, Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, Goliath was probably not smart enough to be general himself, but nevertheless. They saw him approaching this young shepherd, whom I think even the Philistines would have said, he's a brave man. Oh, he's foolish, but he's brave. Look at him, he's, he's coming on, he doesn't even have arms or armor. This guy wants to die. They could smell victory in the air, and they were anxious to rout and to plunder Israel. Uh, we don't think of this much today, but in those days, one of the fruits of victory is to plunder the enemy camp. Because the enemy camp was full of a lot of goodies. They didn't just come there with sea rations and you know, dirty underwear. They, they came with all kinds of goodies. Uh, you know, Money was brought along, and, and, and the, the high-ranking guys lived in pretty nice tents with all the accoutrements of home. And, and so plundering all of that was one of the fruits of victory. I think, though, I just believe that there were a few in the Philistine army who may have remembered. It wasn't too long ago that just one Israelite soldier with his armor bearer virtually routed the whole Philistine army. And when Jonathan and his armor bearer took them on and scattered them, and Saul, of course, and his army then joined in, but they ran all the way home and lost lots of men. How could they quite forget that? And they have to remember it. it all began with one man, which is just one guy out here. Hmm. I think some of them weren't quite so cocksure of the victory that day. They may have been troubled by the thought that there's a trap here. There's got to be more to this. Saul is not so stupid to risk everything on what appears to be a foregone victory for our side. We should be watching out for a trap. Maybe the cavalry is coming around behind. I think some of them may have had a Faint memory of the days when Israel had a champion named Samson. That would have been an interesting uh, matchup, wouldn't it? Samson and Goliath. I think Goliath would have been a lot taller than Samson, but Samson probably would have made Goliath into a pretzel. It's possible that a few also remembered, you know, it wasn't too long ago when we brought the Ark of Israel into our proper territory here and we parked it in our god Dagon's temple and Dagon kept falling on his face. Maybe we ought to be thinking about this God of Israel a little bit that that this young shepherd is proclaiming. Well, what was Israel thinking? Well, I think in the armies in the ranks of Israel, there was a lot of fear and uncertainty. Who is this guy? Some of them had heard David the night before sort of saying, well, why isn't anybody going out and dealing with this guy? He's he's insulting Israel. He's insulting our manhood. Why don't we get out and do something about it? And some had also heard Eliab, his older brother, put him down and disparage him. So, you know, it was kind of, well, can he do it? Can he not? Uh, Most, of course, didn't know who David was. They had no reason to believe that he stood a chance with Goliath. Who is David anyway? They'd never even heard of him before. That's the whole point of this encounter, is that that would no longer be true. After all, David had just been a civilian. He was a (laughs) walk-on. You know, he just walked into the camp, and now he's being sent out to face Goliath as our champion? I think many in Israel just couldn't believe it. I I think they, of course, may have marveled at David's courage and subconsciously they thought, I'm sure glad I'm not out there as David is right now. I think a few few of them said, Saul has flipped his cookie. Saul's demon is back, giving Saul a bad time, and Saul doesn't know what he's doing. He's risking everything on this untrained youth that is a total unknown, a dark horse, as as you might um, think. And on top of that, he's not even dressed in battle gear, and he's not, he doesn't have any weapons. What hope do we have? David did not have a praying church behind him. He didn't have a church that was on its knees praying for him that day. He had a bunch of guys back there saying, this guy's dead. <laughs> even the king of Israel didn't have the faith that David had that day. John, why did they stay there then? I mean, if I knew I was going to be plundered, I'd be... Oh, if David had dropped, they'd have done just what the Philistines did. They'd have been out of there. Well, I would have thought that they would have started running earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Get a head start, right? <laughs> there may have been a few who did. We don't know. There to be some sense of faith or curiosity to stay at watch. Yeah, I, I'm sure curiosity more than faith. Uh, uh, there, there may have been in the hearts of some a latent faith in the God of Israel. We don't know. There sure wasn't any overt manifestation of it. But I think partly it was pride. It's, you know it, it wasn't three hours and 20 minutes of David approaching Goliath. You know? It was something that took place in a fairly short period of time. So I think they were so awestruck watching it happen, they couldn't turn away <laughs> to, to, to see this happen. But you know, I think there were a few in Israel who remembered back to the Civil War that had been fought in Israel a, a, a few decades back in which left-handed slingers of Benjamin had slain thousands of Israelite soldiers. And the scripture says that they could sling a stone at a hair breadth. And some thought, well, he's got a sling. Maybe there is a chance. Maybe there is a chance. Maybe he's good. In you know, World War I, I hate to wear out World War I, but in, in World War I, When the Americans came onto the scene, even though they were ill-trained for battle, a lot of Americans were recruited out of the South where they were used to shooting squirrels out of trees at 200 yards. And the Germans were not used to this kind of thing. They weren't used to people picking off their officers, looking for the guy with the most medals and blowing him away. You know, They were used to just the two just shooting at whoever was on the other side. and, And the Germans got really ticked. It was almost like there were rules of warfare. It's, it's kind of like a little later in the, in the Battle of the Ardennes, the Americans used 12-gauge sawed-off shotguns, and the Germans officially complained. <laughs> <laughs> this is illegal. You can't use shotguns. They use poison gas, <laughs> they. Yeah, they used poison gas. But, of course, it hadn't been illegal yet. <laughs> I don't think shotguns were illegal either, but they wanted it to be. The question, though, in their minds would have been this. David may be good, and he may be an accurate slinger, but... This guy's armored. He's huge. He's powerfully built. He's got an iron helmet on down to here, you know? And he's, and he's, and he's got all this body armor on. I mean, David's got to be pretty accurate. To do any damage this guy, can he do it? Is, is, is Goliath vulnerable? I think many must have had a sinking feeling that the freedom they had recently won for the Philistines was about to be lost again. And they would be dominated by this evil nation. Whatever their thoughts were, thousands of pairs of eyes were glued on those two men that morning. As they approached each other and as this drama unfolded, and these soldiers were probably not more than a hundred yards from the combatants, as they closed together there on the banks of the brook Elah. And we'll pick it up next Sunday. Remember when our tour drove us up to that promontory, like an end zone seat. Yeah, down the yeah, and yeah. It, so it's really, we're sitting here reliving that all, yeah. all during the time you've been talking. Yeah, you, you, you probably remember as we stood on the top of the, uh, the tell at Azika, mm-hmm. how you could look down into the whole amphitheater thing. And it was quite an amazing scene to view. Must have imagination. Yeah. I hate to cut it off here, but our time is more than over. But one of the things I want to emphasize as we begin next week is that we're not just talking about a man named David against a man named Goliath. That this was the focus of cosmic forces that day. The Elah Valley was the center of the interests of heaven and hell that very day. And there was a whole lot more going on there than appeared to anybody's eye.